all of you. My heart is uh, full for many reasons uh, this morning. Uh, I've got to express a few of those. One is a huge thank you to this congregation and to many others that participated in uh, our holiday food giveaway with the Servants Love Incorporated. If you donated uh, food or money, if you helped sort cans and look at those incredibly small dates on those cans, trying to figure out uh, what year uh, it was produced, if you helped carry cans more than once, whatever you did, uh, over 40 families were blessed yesterday, and, and I believe God was glorified. And so thank you for your participation in, in that effort. I love that effort, but I also love it when it's done, when it's done. But it's a, it's a great, great thing, a great thing. Uh, my heart is full today because uh, of a lady that I want you to be sure to get to know and love like I do. And her name is... Uh, really full today. Her name is Betty Thompson. Betty's here today. That's Don Alsop's mother. And uh, Randy and I baptized her into Christ early last week. And uh, Miss Betty, I'm sorry your age is in the bulletin, so I might as well just be open. Uh, this 90-year young lady uh, wanted to make her calling and election sure and uh, was baptized into Christ. So we Welcome our sister in Christ, and uh, please get to know her. She is a sweet, sweet soul. Sweet soul. Oh, now i got to talk to you about Blaine, just for a second. And, and he led that song just before I got up to speak. I love that song, and I hope that uh, that song resonates with you. But it did remind me, we asked Blaine if he wanted to speak today. And uh, I think we would handle that about the same way he would blubber like I'm doing right now. But he has to lead singing, and I thought, that's, that's wonderful. And it brought me back to uh, uh, those, I don't even like this word, pandemic. But when we were, three or four of us were meeting in the elders' conference room, and and trying to lead worship uh, virtually for the rest of us. Blaine would often lead singing. And for many of us, that was uh, our introduction to Blaine's voice. And, and when he didn't lead, we'd get comments, where's Blaine, where's Blaine? And so I thought it was wonderful that, uh, that, he, led, that he led singing this morning. Their plan is to head out Tuesday, load up tomorrow, head out Tuesday. So uh, with them goes uh, all of our love and, and uh, our very best uh, wishes. Wishes is not good enough. We ask for God's blessings upon them uh, now and forever. It has been... a joy and a privilege to work alongside Blaine and Auburn and to help them welcome Marlo into the world. Uh, they are family to us and will always be. So that's all I can say about that for now. But uh, fill them up with uh, your love and appreciation today as uh, they'll be making that move on Tuesday. But we love y'all very, very much. 
Now I've got to preach. Okay. You hear this statement a lot at this time of year. Uh, Christ the Savior is born. And I know there are some that perhaps think we should not mention that. But here's my vantage point. If people are thinking, even in the most remote way, about Jesus, even if it is his birth, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it not that he was born into the world, but I want to talk about why he came into the world. So that the idea of Christmas and the birth of Jesus isn't wrapped up, pun intended, in gifts and all that kind of commercialism, but that we see behind it, we see behind it the love of God that loved us so much that he gave his son for us and that he did come and he was born as a babe, but he grew to be a man and he fulfilled the purpose for which he came. So why did Jesus come? We don't have to wonder about that question because the Bible is explicit. Um, in fact, from the lips of Jesus, as recorded in red letter edition Bibles, there's about 12 times where he makes this statement, I have come. So Jesus, why have you come? And you can look at those verses. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly, John 10, 10. I have come to do my Father's will, John 6, 38. And on and on you can go. And, and, and Jesus will tell you why he's come. And we're going to look at one of those passages this morning in Matthew chapter 10. And I invite you to look up that passage. The passage was spoken by Jesus to his disciples as he's about to send them out. And so a lot of the instruction has to do with his apostles, particularly. But yet, by extension, we learn so much about what Jesus expects and even demands of us as we look at this text together. And I want to go with you down to verse 34 in perhaps one of the most striking statements, I have come statements that Jesus makes. In fact, here's how striking it is. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Does that strike you? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a second. What did the angels proclaim to the shepherds? Luke 2.14, another text we often hear this time of year. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Didn't Jesus come to bring peace on earth? We sing about that. Isn't he the prince of peace, fulfilling prophecy? Isaiah 9 and verse 6. And the answer is, yes, he's the prince of peace. Yes, he came to give peace. But there's a qualification here that other translations of Luke 2, 14, I think, help us to understand. Notice from the NIV. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to whom? To those on whom his favor rests. Those on whom God's favor rests are the ones who experience the peace that Jesus wants us to have. In the English Standard Version, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
Only those upon, with whom God is pleased and upon whom His favor rests are those who experience the peace that Jesus came to give. By the way, the peace that Jesus came to give is not peace on earth. It's peace with God. It's peace with God. That's why Jesus came. Compare this to John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have what? You have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. You see the contrast? In the world, what do you have, Jesus? And let me remind you again in the New King James Version that this is citing the word will as italicized. So it's been added to help a translation, but you can leave it out. In the world, you have tribulation. That's what Jesus is saying. So where is peace? In me. Peace is in me, in that relationship with God through me. So what does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, let me tell you a, an account of, that I read this past week that I think Jesus is speaking about. It's about a man by the name of Afshin Zayafat. And he says this, I was born in Houston and grew up in a devout Muslim home. My dad was very involved in the Iranian Muslim community. Growing up, I was taught the five pillars of Islam and told that if I did them to the best of my ability, then maybe I'd get to heaven. I spoke Farsi, not English. So God in his incredible plan provided a Christian lady who tutored me, teaching me the English language every day by reading books to me. When I was in the second grade, she said, Afshin, I want to give you the most important book you'll ever read in your life. As she handed me a small New Testament, she asked me to promise to hold on to it until I was older. Every day I'd read under the covers in my bed with a flashlight so my parents wouldn't see what I was doing. Meanwhile, at my high school, a Christian student sat across the table from me at lunch and told me about Jesus. I'd debate against him each day, and then at night I'd go home to read more about Jesus. One day I got to the book of Romans, and the third chapter completely changed my life. I read about a righteousness that comes apart from what I do for God. This righteousness comes as a gift to be received by faith. I was struck by Romans 3.22, which says that this righteousness comes to all who believe. I thought I was born a Muslim and would always be a Muslim. But that verse said that this righteousness was for anyone who believes of any ethnicity. A couple of weeks later, a guy invited me to an evangelistic crusade where I heard the gospel proclaimed and came to faith in Christ. I decided to hide my newfound faith. I would sneak out to church, intercept mail from the church I was attending, and keep my Bible hidden. But my dad found out. He'd seen my Bible. He'd also seen other differences in my life. He sat me down and said, son, what's going on? 
there's something different about you. Afshin replied, Dad, I'm a Christian. Afshin, he said, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. Everything in my flesh, Afshin writes, wanted to say, forget it, I'll be a Muslim. I didn't want to lose the relationship with my dad, so even I was surprised when I said to my dad, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. If I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I will choose my heavenly father. Afshin then wrote, My father disowned me on the spot. Afshin went on to become a preacher. By God's grace, has a relationship with his father, although his father has not yet come to faith in Christ. What does it mean when Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword? Notice the next verse. I think it helps us understand. Observe what Jesus says in verse 35. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. What's Jesus talking about? He is saying that when one member of a family chooses to follow Jesus, while others don't, then that's going to create conflict. That's going to create division. That's going to be, bring a sword into the relationships of that family. Because you have some that are devoted to following Jesus while others are not. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Not only did Jesus say that, he experienced it. His own family his half-brothers and sisters thought he was out of his mind. Mark 3, 21, when his family heard of it, that is his deeds and how people were flocking to him, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind, he's, he's crazy. We got to get him back home. We got to get him away from, from everybody. John chapter 7, the context is that Jesus couldn't walk openly in Judea anymore because the Jews were out to kill him. So he was in Galilee. And his own half-brothers said to him, and it, and, and it sounds like they are for Jesus and they want him to gain notoriety. And so they, they knew that the, the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And so they said, go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you're doing for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. In other words, go down there. Show what you can do. And it sounds good that they're saying, yes, Jesus, fulfill your God-given mission until you read verse 5. For even his brothers did not believe in him. He had a divided household. Even Jesus, his own brothers, didn't believe in him at this point. I believe after the resurrection, they believed. So when Jesus says, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, severing or bringing a sword to those relationships, 
because of Jesus, he experienced that. But he's also informing us that's what's going to happen in many cases if you choose to follow me. This is a hard text, folks. Because look at what Jesus demands of us. He demands that we love him more than we love our own family. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you got to put me first. Even over the most precious relationships of your family. You've got to love me supremely. Think about Afshin and what he had to decide. If you're going to be a Christian, you cannot be my son. Afshin said, Dad, if I have to make the choice, I'm going to choose Jesus. What Jesus is talking about here is the ordering of our affections. And Wyman Richardson said this, Any earthly love exalted above Jesus becomes an idol. Think about that statement. If you put anyone or anything else before me, Jesus is saying, that is an idol. My love, your love for me must be supreme. We must love Jesus more than we love our family. We must love Jesus more than we love ourselves. Verse 38, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. When you and I think of the cross, most likely the first things that come to our minds are how much God loves us, that he would give his son and that the son of God would willingly go to the cross to die for our sins. And we visualize the cross as, as the symbol of God's love for us. That's how much God loves us, that Jesus stretched out his arms literally and died for us. And that's true. But to take up your cross, you know what it meant to the people and Jesus when he walked the, the earth? They had seen it in the Roman Empire many times. They knew that the cross was an instrument of execution for the vilest of criminals. And that those criminals were compelled to carry their cross to where the cross would be placed in the ground and they would be hung until they died. They knew that when they saw someone carrying a cross to their own execution, that they had committed some capital crime and that they weren't going to survive this. They were going to die. To the people who heard Jesus say these words, take up your cross, that meant death. And Jesus isn't saying we've got to be Christian martyrs. That's not, that's not the point. 
The point is, we got to love Jesus more than our own lives. We've got to die to ourselves. We got to love Jesus more than we love ourselves. In another location, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And then this text, I think we understand it in light of what Jesus says in Matthew 10. Hate doesn't mean to despise. It doesn't mean to mistreat. It doesn't, none of that. But Jesus is trying to get our attention that he's got to come first. And even the most precious people in our lives come after him. And then he goes on to say this, verse 39. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You remember this was spoken initially to the apostles. We can do a study of the apostles and what tradition says about the apostles and see that most all of them, except for John, gave their lives in service to Christ. Peter, crucified, upside down, according to tradition. They lost their lives for the sake of Christ. What do we take away from this? Here are two lessons I think we, at the very least, can take away. Number one, if we make it our ambition to pursue the advancement of our own brief life on this earth, that is, focus on our pleasure, on our comfort, on our desires, and we place that ambition above the cost of following Jesus, then we're going to miss out, we're going to forfeit the very life that we're seeking. In other words, if we're all wrapped up in self, we're not going to find that life. Here's the second lesson. If we love Jesus supremely and live accordingly, then we can gain the very life that we've always wanted. That is the truly abundant life now and eternal life to come. First things first, this phrase kept coming to me. It's Jesus first, folks. We know that. It's it's Jesus first. We get it right when we love him first. Jesus must be our first love. Does that phrase cause uh, you to think about another passage? Revelation chapter 2, Jesus has a message for the church at Ephesus. There are many good things going on in Ephesus and the church there, and he commends them for that. But then he makes this statement, but you have left your first love. You have left your first love. You're doing a lot of good things, but you're not loving me supremely like you did initially. And you need to repent and redo those things that spoke of, that demonstrated the love, your first love for for me. See, this is striking to me. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And you've got to love me more than your mom and dad or your children. But then the more that I thought about it, 
And the more I seek to understand Scripture and, and the, the will of God, what Jesus is seeking to do is to help us get it right. And what's right and what's the will of God and what it, we need is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and our neighbor as ourselves. But in that order, we got to love Jesus supremely. And here's another wonderful thing about putting first love first. We learn from Jesus what it really means to love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins. You remember Jesus said this, and he died to prove it. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And folks, when we love Jesus first, we learn what real love is. And we're better able to love the other people we want to love. So here's the application. The greatest thing you can do for your loved one and for yourself is to love Jesus first. Can I say that again? The greatest thing that you can do for your loved one and for yourself is love Jesus first. The best thing I can do for my wife is to love Jesus first. I say to my children, love Jesus more than you love me. I say to our young people who might want to get married one day, young man, I pray that you'll find someone to marry you that loves Jesus more than she loves you. To young women, I say, I pray that you'll marry a man who loves Jesus first. That's where it's got to start. To my church family, I say, Love Jesus first. Love him first. Because it's the love of Jesus that's the strongest binding agent in your relationships with your loved ones. Did you hear me? The key to your loving relationship with others is your love for Jesus. So I like Wyman Richardson's statement. We love one another best when we love one another second to Jesus. So let's put first love first. First love first. Is Jesus your first love? When you look at what Jesus did for us, it's easy to love him. It's easy to be motivated to love him. It may be more difficult to, to demonstrate that love. But I hope that we'll leave here this morning 
with a resolve, I'm going to love Jesus first. And everybody else right after that, but that love for Jesus is going to help me love others even better. If you may have been studying, you may be ready to obey the gospel. You may be, you may be ready to say, I love Jesus first. And I want to be cleansed by his blood that he shed in his love so that I can be saved, so I can be reconciled to God, so that I can live the rest of my life demonstrating just how much I love Jesus. We'll rejoice with you as we celebrate with you if you respond confessing Christ, turning from sin, ready to be baptized into Christ so your sins can be washed away by his blood. But then Jesus' statement to Ephesus rings in our ears. Have we left our first love? Are there some idols that have creeped in? Do we need to make some changes to show Jesus we love him first? If you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, please come right now as we stand and sing.